C. The Law of Works Christ has redeemed us from the necessity of keeping the law as the condition of our justification and acceptance with God. Without such redemption there could be no justification and no salvation. It is the obedience of Christ himself that has secured this release. For it is by his obedience that many will be constituted righteous. Romans 5.19 In other words, it is the active and passive obedience of Christ that is the price of this redemption. Active and passive obedience because he was made under the law, fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness, and met all the sanctions of justice. 2. Sin That Christ redeemed his people from sin follows from what has been said respecting law. The strength of sin is the law, and where no law is, there is no transgression. 1 Corinthians 15.56 and Romans 4.15 But the scripture also brings redemption into direct relation to sin. It is in this connection that the blood of Christ is clearly indicated to be the means whereby such redemption is secured. Redemption from sin embraces the several aspects from which sin may be viewed. It is redemption from sin in all its aspects and consequences. This is particularly apparent in such passages as Hebrews 9.12 and Revelation 5.9. The inclusive character of redemption as it affects sin and its accompanying evils is shown perhaps most clearly by the fact that the eschatological consummation of the whole redemptive process is referred to as the redemption. See Luke 21.28, Romans 8.23, Ephesians 1.14 and 4.30, and possibly 1 Corinthians 1.30. That the concept of redemption should be used to designate the complete and final deliverance from all evil and the realization of the goal to which the whole process of redemptive grace moves advertises very conspicuously how closely bound up with redemption, as wrought by Christ, is the attainment of the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And it also shows that redemption is constitutive of the very notion of consummated bliss for the people of God. No wonder then that Old Testament prophecy should be in these terms, see Hosea 13.14, and that the song of the glorified should be the song of redemption, see Revelation 1.5 and 6 and chapter 5 verse 9. In this discussion we are thinking, however, of redemption as a finished accomplishment on the part of Christ. When redemption is viewed in that more restricted sense, there are two aspects of sin which come into distinct prominence as those upon which the redemptive accomplishment of Christ bears. They are the guilt and the power of sin. And the two effects issuing from this redemptive accomplishment are, respectively, 1. Justification and forgiveness of sin, and 2. Deliverance from the enslaving defilement and power of sin. Redemption as it affects guilt and issues in justification and remission is in view in such passages as Romans 3.24, Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, and Hebrews 9.15. And redemption as it affects the enslaving power and defilement of sin is in view in Titus 2.14, 1 Peter 1.18, though in these latter we cannot exclude all forensic import. In connection with redemption from the guilt of sin, the blood of Christ as substitutionary ransom, and as the ransom price of our release, is brought distinctly into view. The ransom utterances of our Lord, Matthew 20.28, and Mark 10.45, show beyond question that he interpreted the purpose of his coming into the world in terms of substitutionary ransom, and that this ransom was nothing less than the giving of his life. 
and in the usage of the New Testament the giving of his life is the same as the shedding of his blood. Redemption, therefore, in our Lord's view, consisted in substitutionary bloodshedding, or bloodshedding in the room instead of many, with the end in view of thereby purchasing to himself the many on whose behalf he gave his life a ransom. It is this same notion that is reproduced in the apostolic teaching. Although the terminology is not precisely that of redemption, we cannot mistake the redemptive import of Paul's statement in his charge to the elders of Ephesus when he refers to the church of God, which he hath purchased through his own blood. Acts 20.28 Elsewhere the thought of Paul here is expressed overtly in the language of redemption or ransom when of Christ Jesus he says that he gave himself on our behalf in order that he might ransom us from all iniquity and purify to himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Or again, when Paul says that in the Beloved we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 See also Colossians 1.14 It is quite plain that he conceives of the forgiveness of sins as the blessing accrued from blood redemption. And though Hebrews 9.15 is difficult to exegete, yet it is clear that the death of Christ is the means of redemption in reference to sins committed under the Old Covenant. The death of Christ is redemptively efficacious in reference to sin. We may not artificially separate redemption as ransom from the guilt of sin from the other categories in which the work of Christ is to be interpreted. These categories are but aspects from which the work of Christ, once for all accomplished, must be viewed, and therefore they may be said to interpermeate one another. This fact, as it applies to redemption, appears, for example, in Romans 3, verses 24 through 26. Being justified freely, Paul says, by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth a propitiation through faith in his blood, to show forth his righteousness at the present time, in order that he might be just and the justifier of him who is of the faith of Jesus. Here not only are redemption and propitiation collocated, but there is a combination of concepts bearing upon the intent and effect of Christ's work. And this shows how closely interrelated these various concepts are. This passage exemplifies and confirms what other considerations establish, namely, that redemption from the guilt of sin must be construed in juridical terms analogous to those which must be applied to expiation, propitiation, and reconciliation. Redemption from the power of sin may be called the triumphal aspect of redemption. In his finished work, Christ did something once for all respecting the power of sin, and it is in virtue of this victory which he secured that the power of sin is broken in all those who are united to him. It is in this connection that a strand of New Testament teaching needs to be appreciated, but which is frequently overlooked. It is that not only is Christ regarded as having died for the believer, but the believer is represented as having died in Christ, and as having been raised up with him to newness of life. This is the result of union with Christ. For by this union Christ is not only united to those who have been given to him, but they are united with him. Hence not only did Christ die for them, but they died in him and rose with him. See Romans 6, verses 1-10, through 10, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, Ephesians 2, verses 1-7, through 7, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 
It is this fact of having died with Christ in the efficacy of his death and of having risen with him in the power of his resurrection that ensures for all the people of God deliverance from the dominion of sin. It supplies the ground for the exhortation, Even so reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.11 And gives force to the apodictic assurance, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6.14 It is this fact of having died and risen with Christ, viewed as an implication of the death and resurrection of Christ once for all accomplished, that provides the basis of the sanctifying process. And it is constantly pleaded as the urge and incentive to sanctification in the practice of the believer. It is here also that we may properly reflect upon the bearing of redemption upon Satan. It is to the triumphal aspect of redemption that this is to be allocated. The early fathers of the Christian church gave a prominent place to this phase of redemption and construed it in terms of ransom paid to the devil. Such a construction became fanciful and ludicrous. Its falsity was effectively exposed by Anselm in his epical work, Cur Deus Homo. In reaction from this fanciful formulation we are, however, too liable to discount the great truth which these fathers were seeking to express. That truth is the bearing which the redemptive work of Christ has upon the power and activity of Satan and upon the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. See Ephesians 6.12 It is surely significant in this connection that the first promise of redemptive grace, the first beam of redemptive light that fell upon our fallen first parents, was in terms of the destruction of the tempter. And this same emphasis is embedded in the New Testament. As our Lord was approaching Calvary, and as he had been reminded anew by the request of the Greeks of the worldwide significance of the work he was about to accomplish, It was then he took occasion to refer to the triumph over the archenemy, and he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. John 12.31 And for the Apostle Paul, the glory which radiated from the cross of Christ was a glory irradiated by the fact that he spoiled the principalities and the powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15 While we too often fail to reckon with the grim reality of death and are composed in its presence, not because of faith but because of hardened insensitivity, it was not so in the fervor of New Testament faith. It was with depth of meaning that the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2:14 and 15. It was that triumph alone that released believers from the bondage of fear and inspired the confidence and composure of faith. But this triumph had relevance for them because their consciousness was one conditioned by the awareness of the role and activity of Satan, and confidence and composure entered their breasts because they knew that Christ's triumph terminated upon the sinister agent who had the power of death. We thus see that redemption from sin cannot be adequately conceived or formulated except as it comprehends the victory which Christ secured once for all over him who is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. We must view sin and evil in its larger proportions as a kingdom that embraces the subtlety, craft, ingenuity, power, and unremitting activity of Satan and his legions, the principalities, and the powers, the world rulers of this darkness, 
the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. Ephesians 6.12 And it is impossible to speak in terms of redemption from the power of sin, except as there comes within the range of this redemptive accomplishment the destruction of the power of darkness. It is thus that we may entertain a more intelligent understanding of what Christ encountered when he said, This is your hour and the power of darkness, Luke 22.53, and of what the Lord of glory wrought when he cast out the prince of this world, John 12.31. Chapter 3. The Perfection of the Atonement In Protestant polemics, this feature of the atoning work of Christ has been oriented against the Romish tenet that the work of satisfaction accomplished by Christ does not relieve the faithful of the necessity of making satisfaction for sins which they have committed. According to Romish theology, all past sins, both as respects their eternal and temporal punishment, are blotted out in baptism, and also the eternal punishment of the future sins of the faithful. But for the temporal punishment of post-baptismal sins, the faithful must make satisfaction either in this life or in purgatory. In opposition to every such notion of human satisfaction, Protestants rightly contend that the satisfaction of Christ is the only satisfaction for sin and is so perfect and final that it leaves no penal liability for any sin of the believer. It is true that in this life believers are chastised for their sins and such chastisement is corrective and sanctifying. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them who are exercised thereby, Hebrews 12.11. And this chastisement is painful. But to approximate chastisement to satisfaction for sin is to impugn not only on the perfection of Christ's work, but also upon the nature of Christ's satisfaction. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There must not be any abatement of the Protestant polemic against this perversion of the gospel of Christ. If we once allow the notion of human satisfaction to intrude itself in our construction of justification or sanctification, then we have polluted the river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. And the gravest perversion that it entails is that it robs the Redeemer of the glory of his once-for-all accomplishment. He by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 the situation, however, in which we find ourselves in reference to debate upon the subject of the atonement requires us to take into account other ways in which the doctrine of the perfection of the atonement has been prejudiced, and it is necessary for us to subsume under this caption other features of the finished work of Christ. Number 1. The Historic Objectivity In the atonement something was accomplished once for all, without any participation or contribution on our part. A work was perfected which antedates any and every recognition or response on the part of those who are its beneficiaries. Any curtailing of this fact in the interest of what is supposed to be a more ethical interpretation or in the interest of interpreting the atonement in terms of the ethical effects it is calculated to produce in us is to eviscerate the truth of the atonement. The atonement is objective to us, performed independently of us, and the subjective effects that accrue from it presuppose its accomplishment. The subjective effects exerted in our understanding and will can follow only as we recognize by faith the meaning of the objective fact. There is another implication of its historical objectivity that needs to be stressed. It is the strictly historical character of that which was accomplished. 
The atonement is not superhistorical, nor is it contemporary. It is indeed true that the person who atoned for sin is above history as regards his deity and eternal sonship. As such he is eternal and transcends all the conditions and circumstances of time. He is with the Father and Spirit the God of history. It is also true that as the incarnate Son exalted to the right hand of God, he is in a true sense contemporary. He ever lives, and as the living one who was dead but is alive again, he is the ever-present and ever-active embodiment of the efficacy, virtue, and power accruing from the atonement. But the atonement was made in human nature and at a particular season in the past and finished calendar of events. Could anything point up the truth and significance of this more clearly than the word of the Apostle? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under law to redeem them that were under law. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Whether we interpret the fullness of time as the full measure of the time appointed by God, the period that had to run its course before God sent forth his Son, or at the time which consummates time and gives time its full complement, we must recognize the significance of time for that mission which is registered in and signalized by the incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation occurred at a specific point marked by the arrival of the fullness of time. It did not occur before then, and though the incarnate state is abiding, the incarnation did not occur again. History with its fixed appointments and well-defined periods has significance in the drama of divine accomplishment. The historical conditioning and locating of events in time cannot be erased, nor their significance underestimated. And what is true of the event of the Incarnation is true also of the redemption wrought. Both are historically located, and neither is superhistorical or contemporary. Number 2. The Finality In historical polemics, this feature of the Atonement has been urged against the Romish doctrine of the sacrifice of the Mass. This polemic against Romish blasphemy is just as necessary today as it was in the Reformation period. The Atonement is a completed work, never repeated and unrepeatable. In our modern context, however, it is necessary to insist upon this tenet not only in opposition to Rome, but also in opposition to a viewpoint prevalent within Protestant circles. This viewpoint is that the divine sin-bearing cannot be confined to the historical event of Jesus' sacrifice, but must be regarded as eternal, that the work of atonement incarnate in the passion of Jesus Christ is eternal in the heavens in the very life of God, an eternal work of atonement, supertemporal as the life of God is, and going on as long as sins continue to be committed and there are sinners to be reconciled. It is indeed highly necessary to recognize the continued high priestly activity of Christ in heaven. It is necessary to remember that he eternally embodies in himself the efficacy that accrued from his sacrifice upon earth, and that it is, in virtue of such efficacy, that he exercises his heavenly ministry as the great high priest of our profession. It is on this ground that he intercedes on behalf of his people, and it is by reason of the sympathy derived from his earthly temptations that he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This is just saying that the unity of Christ's priestly office and activity must be fully appreciated. But that we must not disrupt the unity of his priestly functions does not mean that we are at liberty to confuse the distinct actions and phases of his priestly office. 
we must distinguish between the offering of sacrifice and the subsequent activity of the high priest. What the New Testament stresses is the historical once-for-allness of the sacrifice that expiated guilt and reconciled to God. See Hebrews 1.3, 9.12, and verses 25-28. To fail to assess the finality of this once-for-allness is to misconceive what atonement really is. In the biblical construction, atonement cannot be conceived of apart from the conditions under which it is wrought. Two conditions at least are indispensable, humiliation and obedience, and these are mutually conditioning one to another. It runs counter to the whole tenor of Scripture to transfer atonement to that realm where it would be impossible for us to believe that these conditions exist. Furthermore, If we are thinking of the formula, eternal atonement in the heart of God, we must again make distinctions. It is true that the atonement issued from and was the provision of eternal love in the heart of God, but to conceive of atonement as eternal is to confuse the eternal and the temporal. What the witness of Scripture bears out unmistakably is the real significance for God of the temporal accomplishment. To this it refers atonement, and it does so definitely and decisively. Our definition of atonement must be derived from the atonement of which Scripture speaks. And the atonement of which Scripture speaks is the vicarious obedience, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption performed by the Lord of glory, when once for all he purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Number 3. The Uniqueness Horace Bushnell has given us what is probably the most eloquent exposition and defense of the idea that the sacrifice of Christ is but the supreme illustration and vindication of the principle of self-sacrifice which is operative in the breast of every loving and holy being as that being is confronted with sin and evil. Love is a principle essentially vicarious in its own nature, he says, identifying the subject with others so as to suffer their adversities and pains and taking on itself the burden of their evils. There is a Gethsemane hid in all love. See page 47. Holding such a view of vicarious sacrifice, we must find it belonging to the essential nature of all holy virtue. We are also required, of course, to go forward and show how it pertains to all other good beings, as truly as to Christ himself in the flesh, how the Eternal Father before Christ, and the Holy Spirit coming after, and the good angels, both before and after, all alike have borne the burdens, struggled in the pains of their vicarious feeling for men, and then at last how Christianity comes to its issue, in begetting in us the same vicarious love that reigns in all the glorified and good minds of the heavenly kingdom, gathering us in after Christ our Master, as they have learned to bear his cross and be with him in his passion. Page 53 To distinguish truth from error and to unravel the fallacies in these quotations would take us far beyond our limits. It is true that the sacrifice of Christ is the supreme revelation of the love of God. It is true that the life, sufferings, and death of Christ provide us with the supreme example of virtue. It is true that the afflictions of the church fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ and that through these afflictions of believers, the atoning work of Christ realizes its purpose. But to aver that we have part in that which constituted the vicarious sacrifice of Christ is an entirely different matter. It is indefensible and perverse to place upon the terms vicarious and sacrifice 
a diluted connotation that will reduce the vicarious sacrifice of Christ to a denomination that will rob it of the unique and distinctive character which the scripture applies to it. Christ has indeed given us an example that we should follow his steps, but it is never proposed that this emulation on our part is to extend to the work of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption which he accomplished. We need but define atonement in scriptural terms to recognize that Christ alone made it. And not only so, by what warrant or by what reasoning may we infer that what is constitutive of or is exemplified in the vicarious sacrifice of Christ is that which applies to all holy love as it contemplates sin and evil. It is only by fatal confusion of categories that any such inference can be made plausible. The scripture representation is that the Son of God incarnate, and he alone, to the exclusion of the Father and Son in the realm of the divine, to the exclusion of angels and men in the created order, gave himself a sacrifice to redeem us to God by his blood. From whatever angle we look upon his sacrifice, we find its uniqueness to be as inviolable as the uniqueness of his person, of his mission, and of his office. Who is God-man but he alone? Who is great high priest to offer such sacrifice but he alone? Who shed such vicarious blood but he alone? Who entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption but he alone? We may well quote the words of Hugh Martin. They are taken from his masterful polemic against the dictum of F.W. Robertson that vicarious sacrifice is the law of being. With reference to this, Martin says, A very oracular announcement. It is needless to say that we meet it with a direct denial. Vicarious sacrifice is not only not the law of being, it is not a law at all. It is one solitary, matchless, divine transaction, never to be repeated, never to be equaled, never to be approached. It was the splendid and unexpected device of divine wisdom, which in its disclosure flooded the minds of angels with the knowledge of God. It was the free counsel of the good pleasure of God's will. It was the sovereign appointment of his grace and love. We are robbed of the sovereign love of God by the notion that vicarious sacrifice is the law of being. Number four, the intrinsic efficacy. In the polemics of historical theology, this aspect of the atonement has been urged against the remonstrant doctrine that Christ did something which God graciously accepts in place of full satisfaction to justice. The statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith is admirably framed in contradistinction from the remonstrant position. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Section 8, paragraph 5. It is necessary to conceive and formulate aright the relation of the grace of God to the atoning work of Christ. It was by the grace of God that Christ was given on our behalf. It was by his own grace that he gave himself. It would be wholly false to conceive of the work of Christ as bringing inducements to bear upon the Father, so that he is thereby constrained to be loving and gracious. But God, being rich in mercy, on account of his great love wherewith he loved us, and we being dead in trespasses, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. See also 1 John 4 verse 9. The atonement is the provision of the Father's love and grace. But there is equal need for remembering that the work wrought by Christ was in itself intrinsically adequate to meet all the exigencies created by our sin and all the demands of God's holiness and justice. Christ discharged the debt of sin. He bore our sins and purged them. He did not make a token payment which God accepts in place of the whole. Our debts are not canceled, they are liquidated. Christ procured redemption and therefore he secured it. He met in himself and swallowed up the full toll of divine condemnation and judgment against sin. He wrought righteousness, which is the proper ground of complete justification and the title to everlasting life. Grace thus reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See Romans 5 verses 19 and 21. He expiated guilt and by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 Being made perfect, he became the author, the cause, of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Hebrews 5.9 In a word, Jesus met all the exigencies arising from our sin, and he procured all the benefits that lead to, and are consummated in, the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Chapter 4 The Extent of the Atonement The question of the extent of the atonement is simply, For whom did Christ make atonement? In even simpler language it is, for whom did Christ die? It might appear that the Bible gives an unambiguous answer to the effect that Christ died for all men. For we read, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned away every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6 It would be easy to argue that the denotation of the all in the last clause is just as extensive as the number of those who have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. If so, the conclusion would be that the Lord laid on his Son the iniquity of all men and that he was made an offering for the sin of all. Again we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Hebrews 2.9 And it might be said that John puts the question beyond all debate when he says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2.2 We are not to think, however, that the quotation of a few texts like these and several others that might be quoted determines the question. From beginning to end, the Bible uses expressions that are universal in form, but cannot be interpreted as meaning all men, distributively and inclusively. Such words as world and all, and such expressions as everyone and all men, do not always in scripture mean every member of the human race. For example, when Paul says with reference to the unbelief of Israel, For if their trespass is the riches of the world, how much more their fullness? Romans 11.12 Are we to suppose that he meant that the trespass of Israel brought the riches of which he is speaking to to every person who had been, is now, and ever will be in the world? Such an interpretation would make nonsense. The word world would then have to include Israel, which is here contrasted with the world. And it is not true that every member of the human race was enriched by the fall of Israel. When Paul used the word world here, he meant the Gentile world, as contrasted with Israel. 
The context makes this abundantly plain. So we have an example of the word world used in a restricted sense and does not mean all men distributively. Again when Paul says, As through one trespass judgment came upon all men unto condemnation, even so through one righteous act judgment came upon all men unto justification of life. Romans 5.18 Are we to suppose that justification came upon the whole human race, upon all men distributively and inclusively? This cannot be Paul's meaning. He is dealing with actual justification, the justification that is in Christ and unto eternal life. See verses 1, 16, 17, and 21. And we cannot believe that such justification passed upon every member of the human race unless we believe that all men will ultimately be saved, something contrary to Paul's teaching elsewhere and to the teaching of Scripture in general. Consequently, though Paul uses the expression all men in the first part of the verse in the sense of all men universally, yet he must be using the same expression in the second part of the verse in a much more restricted sense, namely, of all those who will be actually justified. To take another example, when Paul says that all things were lawful for him, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 23, he did not mean that every conceivable thing was lawful for him. It was not lawful for him to transgress the commandments of God. The all things of which he speaks are defined and limited by the context. Numerous other examples might be quoted and cited to show that expressions like these, though universalistic in form, frequently bear a restricted reference and do not mean every person of the human race so it will not do to quote a few texts from the Bible in which such words as world and all occur in connection with the death of Christ and forthwith conclude that the question is settled in favor of universal atonement. We can readily show the fallacy of this procedure in connection with a text like Hebrews 2.9. What provides the denotation of the everyone in the clause in question? Undoubtedly the context. Of whom is the writer speaking in the context? He is speaking of the many sons to be brought to glory, verse 10, of the sanctified who, with the sanctifier, are all of one, verse 11, of those who are called the brethren of Christ, verse 12, and of the children which God had given to him, verse 13. It is this that supplies us with the scope and reference of the everyone for whom Christ tasted death. Christ did taste death for every son to be brought to glory and for all the children whom God had given to him. But there is not the slightest warrant in this text to extend the reference of the vicarious death of Christ beyond those who are most expressly referred to in the context. This text shows how plausible offhand quotation may be and yet how baseless is such an appeal in support of a doctrine of universal atonement. In continuing the analysis of this doctrine, it is necessary to be clear what the question is not. The question is not whether many benefits, short of justification and salvation, accrue to men from the death of Christ. The unbelieving and reprobate in this world enjoy numerous benefits that flow from the fact that Christ died and rose again. The mediatorial dominion of Christ is universal. Christ is head over all things and is given all authority in heaven and in earth. It is within this mediatorial dominion that all the blessings which men enjoy are dispensed. But this dominion Christ exercises on the basis and as the reward of his finished work of redemption. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, 
God also hath highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 Consequently, since all benefits and blessings are within the realm of Christ's dominion, and since this dominion rests upon the finished work of atonement, the benefits innumerable which are enjoyed by all men indiscriminately are related to the death of Christ and may be said to accrue from it in one way or another. If they thus flow from the death of Christ, they were intended thus to flow. It is proper, therefore, to say that the enjoyment of certain benefits, even by the non-elect and reprobate, falls within the design of the death of Christ. The denial of universal atonement does not carry with it the denial of any such relation that the benefits enjoyed by all men may sustain to Christ's death and finished work. The real question is something very different. The question is, on whose behalf did Christ offer himself a sacrifice? On whose behalf did he propitiate the wrath of God? Whom did he reconcile to God in the body of his flesh through death? Whom did he redeem from the curse of the law, from the guilt and power of sin, from the enthralling power and bondage of Satan? In whose stead and on whose behalf was he obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? These are precisely the questions that have to be asked and frankly faced if the matter of the extent of the atonement is to be placed in proper focus. The question is not the relation of the death of Christ to the numerous blessings which those who finally perish may partake of in this life, however important this question is in itself and in its proper place. The question is precisely the reference of the death of Christ when this death is viewed as vicarious death, that is to say, as vicarious obedience, as substitutionary sacrifice, and expiation, as effective propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. In a word, it is the strict and proper connotation of the expression died for that must be kept in mind. When Paul says that Christ died for us, 1 Thessalonians 5.10, or that Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3, he does not have in mind some blessing that may accrue from the death of Christ, but of which we may be deprived in due time, and which may thus be forfeited. He is thinking of the stupendous truth that Christ loved him, and gave himself up for him, Galatians 2.20, that Christ died in his room instead, and that therefore we have redemption through the blood of Christ. If we concentrate on the thought of redemption, we shall be able perhaps to sense more readily the impossibility of universalizing the atonement. What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. This is the triumphal note of the New Testament whenever it plays on the redemptive chord. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood, Revelation 5.9. He obtained eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. He gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works, Titus 2.14. It is to bigger the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and by power to construe it as anything less than the effectual accomplishment which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position but to redeem to himself a people. We have the same result when we properly analyze the meaning of expiation, propitiation and reconciliation. Christ did not come to make sins expiable. He came to expiate sins. 
When he made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. Christ did not come to make God reconcilable. He reconciled us to God by his own blood. The very nature of Christ's mission and accomplishment is involved in this question. Did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible, to remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation, and merely to make provision for salvation? Or did he come to save his people? Did he come to put all men in a savable state? Or did he come to secure the salvation of all those who are ordained to eternal life? Did he come to make men redeemable? Or did he come effectually and infallibly to redeem? The doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if, as atonement, it applies to those who finally perish as well as to those who are the heirs of eternal life. In that event, we should have to dilute the grand categories in terms of which the scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. This we cannot do. The saving efficacy of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption is too deeply embedded in these concepts, and we dare not eliminate this efficacy. We do well to ponder the words of our Lord himself, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything which he hath given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. John 6, 38 and 39 Security inheres in Christ's redemptive accomplishment, and this means that, in respect of the persons contemplated, design and accomplishment and final realization have all the same extent. This doctrine has been called the doctrine of limited atonement. This may or may not be a good or fair denomination, but it is not the term used that is important. It is that which it denotes. It is very easy to raise prejudice against a doctrine by attaching to it a misunderstood epithet. Whether the expression limited atonement is good or not, we must reckon with the fact that unless we believe in the final restoration of all men, we cannot have an unlimited atonement. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, 
I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.